Well, you know, as Americans, we don't want to have anything to do with kings and queens and royalty. We, we celebrate our, our liberty and our democracy, and yet we sure are fascinated with their weddings. Oh, yeah, a royal wedding, it, it grabs America. If you're my age, you probably got up early to watch Charles and Diana get married. Generation later, it's William and Catherine, it's Harry and Meghan, Harry and Meghan are now over here with us. That's another story. I don't think it's just the pomp and the pageantry of royal weddings, though, that grabs us, because we don't really have anything quite like that. You know, many of our most beloved fairy tales end with a royal wedding. Why, why would that be? Why would that fascination, that, that desire to end there, reach way, way back into our collective consciousness and history long before America ever began? Well, I think, I think it has something to do with our, our deep, deep longing, just as human beings, for, for a happy ending and unexpected entry ends. What if, despite what it looks like, what if history really is comedy, not tragedy? What if the fairy tales are really on to something? If you knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there was the potential for a happy ending for your life, indeed, for all of history. Would you do what was needed to get there? Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We're going to be looking at the last two chapters of the Bible this morning. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, as you turn there, let me just orient you a little bit. Uh, We're coming now to the end of the seventh section of the book of Revelation. We've kind of been in that seventh section for the last few sermons, and I apologize for breaking up the last section the way I did, but I explained last week why that seemed necessary. Well, we're getting to the end of that seventh section this morning. We've, we've heard, just to review the book as a whole, we've heard the, the message of the king to his churches. Back in the letters to the churches, we've we've witnessed the the Lord of history open the seals and sound the warning trumpets. We've seen the the bowls of judgment poured out on unbelief. We've also seen these sort of phantasmagoric visions of, of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and Babylon attacking the church only to be defeated by the return of the triumphant Christ, the rider on the white horse. Here's the thing. You, you would assume, given all of that, that, that the book of Revelation would conclude with, with like, I don't know, some sort of military parade, a a, a VE day. But the book of Revelation does not end with V day. It ends with a wedding day. History, it turns out, 
It's not a war story, but a love story. The wedding has been planned from all eternity. The invitations have been sent out to attend that wedding. So here's the question the book of Revelation leaves with all of us. And it's, I think, kind of the the main and driving point of this last section. Will you be present at the wedding of the ages, the marriage of the Lamb? Will you be present? Now, as usual, right, we're in the book of Revelation. So there will be lots of visions, lots of symbols. And as usual, uh, you know, I've, I've said we're, we've, we've gone not to the library, but to, to the movie theater. We're, we're still in one of those Christopher Nolan movies. John is going to bend time in this last section. We're, we're going to start with the wedding day itself. And then we're going we're gonna to kind of move forward in, and even outside of time to the happy couple at home. But then all of a sudden, time is going to rewind and we're going to be back in the present. And we'll see that the invitations have arrived. Let's start with the wedding day. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right, this is the last of those seven visions that I mentioned last week begin each time with then I saw, then I saw. Here is the last of them in this seventh section of Revelation. We have finally reached the end. Now, while that sixth vision, uh, which we looked at last, last week, while, that, while the sixth vision was a vision of judgment, right? right with, with the dragon and death and Hades and all of the reprobate, those whose names were not found in the book of life, all of them cast into hell forever. The seventh vision, if, if that's the last day of history, the seventh vision opens somewhere else. It opens In a new heaven and a new earth, the the new creation is here. And coming down the aisle of this cosmic cathedral built just for the occasion is the bride. 
the holy city, the new Jerusalem, adorned like a bride for her husband. It is the marriage of the Lamb that we heard about back in chapter 19. And the bride is finally ready. Now, John doesn't dwell a lot on, on the setting, this, this new creation, this new heaven and new earth, except to say that, that the sea is no more. I grew up by the ocean. I love the ocean. This verse always made me sad as a kid when I read it. And it is sad if it's literal. But remember, we're in the book of Revelation. Almost all of these images are symbolic. And there is nothing sad going on on this day. Nothing. Throughout the book of Revelation, I haven't always pointed it out, but the sea seems to stand for the, the chaos of the, of the nations in rebellion. It's the place from which the false prophet arose. It is the place where the, the dragon stands on the shore to begin his attack against the church. The absence of the sea here, I don't think, has anything to do with the absence of a, a, a literal ocean in the new creation. No, the absence of the sea here symbolizes the banishment, the complete absence, the exclusion of wickedness and evil forever from the new heaven and the new earth. So, so that's, that's the setting. That's the cathedral in which this wedding happens, this, this new creation in which there's nothing wrong. There is no evil. There is no sin. It's perfect. Now, at a, at a wedding, right, we know what happens at weddings. Normally, the bride and the groom, they, they express their intent to, to marry one, in, one another, and then they, they exchange uh, their vows, and in doing so, they, they seal the, the covenant of their marriage. Well, something like that is going on here, but at this wedding, the bride doesn't speak. I think her words of commitment actually have already been given. Well, We'll see that a little bit later. Her words were given and, and sealed with suffering and persecution and, and even martyrdom. But, but here on the wedding day, it's the groom's words that we hear in a loud voice speaking from the throne. It is his words that seal this covenant. It's his words that finally matter and one last time, you remember we saw this very early, one last time, what we hear is going to interpret what we just saw. And what do we hear? Well, well the Lord declares his intent to dwell with his people, to live with them and to be with them. You see that in verse 3. He, he, he says that, look, there's, there's going to be no reason for tears anymore. No, no more grief or crying or pain because he has caused the old order of things to pass away. Verse four, verse five, he says, look, I'm I'm making all things new. He's he's now talking about this new heaven and this new earth. The, the change, I think, here that is being described in which there's no more sin and no more crying, death or pain and everything's new. The change here, I think, is as much qualitative as it is quantitative. It's as much new in character as it is new in time. There, there are lots of debates out there uh, in, in Christendom of what's, what's the newness of the new creation. 
Like is everything that we see around us going to be utterly destroyed and something brand new that never existed before will come into existence? Or is in some way or another the Lord going to renew all the best things about this creation? Well, Scripture uses both sets of language, the language of renewal and the language of recreation. I'm not sure we're given quite enough information to decide exactly where the line between continuity and discontinuity, the line between new and renewed is, but we are given this. In the new creation, the curse is no more. Frustration and death are gone because sin and evil are no more. That they don't exist inside the new creation. Now, I don't quite understand what this means. But I think it, I think it clearly indicates that in some mysterious way, hell, that, that lake of burning fire and sulfur, which is itself a symbol of final judgment, hell itself is outside the boundaries of the new creation. You see that in, in, in verse 8, that their, their share is somewhere else. Their share is a place where death is, but death is not in the new creation. You, you see it at, at the end of the chapter uh, in verse 27, that, that nothing unclean is ever going to enter into this new city. You see it again in, in the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 15, where we're outside the new creation is the place of sin and death unbelief and evil. I don't know how that could be. I don't know how there could could be a place outside of this new creation. But I am certain that part of what that means is that in Christ, our experience of the new creation will be utterly untroubled, utterly undisturbed, by the reality of that second death. I say that because for many of us, this is the thing that makes heaven so hard. For, for so many of us, we have, we have friends or family members, maybe who are outside of Christ now, or, or who seem to have died outside of Christ, and we, we, we find it hard to imagine, how is it that I could enjoy heaven when, when loved ones are not there. Certainly we've talked about this, that on that last day, with no sin in us, we will think differently about those who are outside of Christ. We will see their sin and unbelief in the same way that God does. And we will be in agreement with him in his judgment. We thought about that, about reigning with Christ last week. But I also think in a, in a very real sense, we, we, we will be in a place where that is not. I used to imagine that sometimes I might be in heaven and I might like take a wrong turn, you know, and go down the wrong alley. And, and like there's hell over there and how disturbing that would be. No, 
That's not what it's going to be like. In some way or another, those of us who are in Christ are going to be in a place where death is not. Full stop. And that must include the second death. Well, the Lord makes his vow to his bride. Having declared his intent of what he's going to do, the Lord now makes his vow to his bride. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. You see that there in verse 6. Eternal life is God's vow, his promise to us. Eternal life is Christ's gift to his bride. And unlike human vows, which are so often broken because we don't have the ability to keep them or because we don't have the will to keep them and we're faithless and we break our vow. Unlike human vows, this vow is not in jeopardy of being broken. The Lord God, who, who I think in this scene we're, we're meant to, to understand is, is both God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. This is a very Trinitarian scene. The Lord God is the sovereign Lord of history. He is the Alpha and the Omega. His word is faithful and true. You can take it to the bank. This it is done that, that echoes from the throne Oh, we can we can be certain of it because we've already heard it as it was uttered from the cross. Judgment day has already come. This statement of it is done has already been declared. Christ died for his bride. And so we have no doubt. We have no doubt that he will keep this promise that he will keep his vow. And from that more glorious throne, which is in so many ways the same throne, he will declare again, it is done. Eternal life is yours, Christian. Do not doubt it. Now finally, in in this section, the Lord identifies his bride. You, You see it there. In verse 7, the the one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, I I realize the metaphors just got all mixed right there, because now we're not talking about the bride, we're talking about the son. But but I think you get it. The, The metaphors may be mixed, but the point is clear. The bride is all of those who overcome. The the bride is all of those who 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 conquer. By, by not compromising their faith, but by not shrinking back, by not giving up, but, but by persevering to the end. The bride are all of those who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ and continue in that profession to the end. They inherit the covenant with David. Fulfilled in Christ, the one and only true Israelite. He is the son and in him we are the son. Excluded are those who we see there in verse 8. Are engaged in idolatry and immorality and rebellion against God's law. They're they're committing murder and, and sorcery. But notice that the list there in verse 8 is bracketed 
by cowards and liars. In other words, those who in fear shrink back from their profession of faith. Or or, or those who falsely professed faith in the first place. These are excluded as well from the new creation. Consigned to the lake of fire. Does this vision of the wedding day of the Lamb at all make you begin to rethink your, 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 your opinion or, or your, your, at, your attitude, your, your impression of, of what kind of God God is? I think for so many of us, we've been thinking about God all wrong. We think of him as, as, as kind of sitting up there just waiting to, to zap us, to call us out on a mistake made. Or, or, or we think of him as somehow coldly and coolly distant. Oh, but friends, this is who God is. From the beginning, this has been God's intent to dwell with humanity. From the the Garden of Eden, where where he walked intimately with Adam and Eve, to, to the promises of Leviticus, which then get renewed in Ezekiel to dwell among his people, God's intent has always been intimacy. Intimacy with the humanity they created. Intimacy with you. He made good on that promise, you know. He made good on that promise by coming in the person of Jesus Christ, by taking on flesh and dwelling among us in the person of his son. He, he continues to, to make good on that promise because he indwells each and every believer by his spirit, and he indwells his church corporately by his spirit. But, but these are just foretastes. Th- th- those were just a, a glimpse. Even Christ in his humanity on earth was just, was just a glimpse of what God fully intended. The wedding day of the Lamb is coming. And on that day, every promise made will be kept. Not in part, but in full. So Christian, consider who this God is. Consider his his promise to you in Jesus Christ. No more suffering. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more curse. No more frustration and futility. You know, all of those things are the result of sin. Our sin, other people's sin, the the, the brokenness and fallenness of this world. And God has promised to take all of that away forever. Not not just the symptoms of it, not just the branches, but the root of it. At the very core of who we are, he has promised to take all of that away. But but notice that that God's promise here, his vow to us, it's not just negative. It's not just I'm going to take stuff away so you don't suffer anymore. No, it's, it's positive. God promises to give you himself. 
You, you understand that God is the gospel. God is our very great reward. God is what makes heaven heaven. And he promises to give us himself fully in presence and in intimacy, like a, like a groom gives himself to his bride. All of his protection, all of his provision, all of his acceptance, all of his love, all of his life. You, you understand that's what makes eternal life eternal, right? The, the whole point of eternal life is not just that it's this life but unending. That would be hell. No, what makes eternal life eternal is that it is God's life that we've been given. That the very life of God. And Christian, this is God's vow to you. And you can be sure he's going to keep it. Because he guaranteed it at the cross. So I wonder what makes you doubt God's promises. Even as a believer, what makes you doubt his promise of love to you, his promise of care for you? Isn't it so often that we're holding God to promises that he never made? We, we think he made us this promise that our life was going to go a certain way if we followed him. We, we think he made us this promise that if, if I just have my quiet times every day, I, uh, you know, life will go better for me. Uh, he, we think he made this promise to us that if we follow him, we'll, we'll somehow be like maybe more successful in this life or, or healthier in this life or, or somehow we'll avoid some of the trials and tribulations that everybody else experiences. Christian, God never made you that promise. He never made it. It, the, whole, the whole book of Revelation, in fact, has been a long reminder that actually what he has promised us is that we will share in Christ's sufferings. We will share in the trials and tribulations of this world. Do not doubt God's promise of love to you because he somehow seemed to fail to keep some promise that you've decided he made that he never made. No, instead, put your hope Put your, 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 your dreams, put, put your confidence in the promise that he has made. That in Christ, he has already given you his life. And that on the last day, you will live in that life forever. Well, with the wedding day over, here at the end of verse 8, with the wedding day over, the seventh section really finds its completion. And, and you'd think that we would now move on to some sort of conclusion, a, an epilogue that, that matches the prologue. Well, that's coming, but that's not what happens next. All of a sudden, a, a, a new section, a kind of eighth section begins. That, that angel that we saw back at the beginning of chapter 17 shows up again, identified again as one of the angels who held the seven bowls, and he's got yet another vision to, to show John. This eighth section begins, but unlike all the other sections, it doesn't have seven sections. It sort of starts and then it, it fades. But it fades not to black. It fades to light. Look with me at Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. 
Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width and height were equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundation of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life. Clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So this brings us to the couple at home. One of the seven angels, as I mentioned, with the with the bowls that we'd seen back in chapter 17 comes to offer to show John the wife of the lamb. And I I refer back to chapter 17, verse one, because the last time this angel showed up, he came to show him the prostitute, the, the judgment of Babylon. Now, we know we're on the other side of the wedding day because she's not just the bride, she's the wife. And, and it's as if. Kind of in this scene, we've, we've taken that, that wedding program, you know, that, that lays out the order of the service. And whenever you, you, you turn it over on the back side, at least traditionally, it always said something like on the back, you know, the couple is at home. 
and then it would give their address. It's almost like that's what's happened here. We've, we've turned the wedding program over, the wedding day's over, and, and we're looking to see, well, where are they going to live? And only we don't, we don't just find an address, we, we get like a video. We're still at the movies. We get this video of, of the new couple happy in their new home together. And the address is new heaven and new earth. Now, once again, just as we saw back in at the beginning of chapter 21, we see the, the holy city. So the church is still described, uh, even though she's the bride, the, the wife, she's still being described as the holy city, the, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And she is beautiful. Not just on her wedding day, but now it's like the, like this is the day after, you know, and she is still just like resplendent in glory. She's she's described with this language of like like precious jewels. Her radiance was like a like a jasper stone, which which many people think might might be actually a, a diamond, just just brilliant in its its radiance. She is radiating. She's reflecting the glory of God, the beauty of her husband. But she's not only beautiful, she's, she's secure. You, you see that in, in verse 12. She's surrounded by these high walls. And later we learn they're like impossibly thick, 144 cubits thick. So she's, she's secure. Not, nothing is going to disturb her relationship with her God, her husband. And she's complete. She is complete. There are, there are 12 gates. All of them are open and and three on each side. They are facing in the four directions of the compass, giving this impression of right. Everybody from everywhere has been brought in. The gates are inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. This is the true and complete Israel. And, and the foundations are described with the names of the 12 apostles. You see that in verse 14. So, so the whole image is that basically, look, from, from first to last, from that very first Old Testament saint to the very last New Testament Christian, they're all here. No one's missing. The complete and gathered church of God, the elect whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So she's beautiful, she's secure, she's complete, but, but, but mainly what we see is she is holy. That, that's what's going on there in verses 15 to, to 21. The, the city, we're told, it's, it's measured, and it's, it's laid out as a, as a perfect cube. The only other place where we see a cube in really all of the Bible is inside the tabernacle, inside the temple. The holy of holies is a cube. So is this church. So, so is the city. But, but it's not just like that, that little holy of holies inside of the temple. This city is a massive holy of holies. If you read the devotion I sent out this week, that, that 12,000 stadia, trying, I just tried to map it, right? So imagine a single holy of holies city that stretches from Portland to Minneapolis and from the Canadian border all the way down to Mexico. I mean, oh my goodness. Have you ever seen such a city, massive in scale? The foundations are described, and, and they're, they're either studded with or they're actually made out of all of these jewels. And what are these 12 jewels? Well, these are the 12 jewels that studded the breastplate of the high priest that he wore when he went inside of the Holy of Holies. 
and you noticed, of course, there's like gold everywhere. The streets are gold. Everything's gold. Just like the inside of the temple. You, you begin to get the idea, right? The people of God, symbolized as this great city, have become the temple of God. The holy of holies itself, where God dwells. But that's not all. In verses 22 to 27, John kind of flips it. Because now all of a sudden he says, oh, there, there is no temple. And you're thinking, wait a second, you, you didn't see a temple, there's no temple in it. But you just told us symbolically that the whole thing is a temple. And, 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 and this is where God is dwelling with, with his people. But now all he says, no, there's no temple because the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. So which is it? Does God dwell in us or do we dwell in God? And the answer is yes, both in this final vision. God's people no longer need to go somewhere to meet with him because they are always already in his presence, never separated, never at a distance. You know, in the old temple, God's presence was symbolized by that, that lampstand that, that always shone in front of the Holy of Holies. But, but now we don't even need sun or moon. Right? Because the glory of the Lord is our luminary and the lamp is the lamb. Verse 23. Before, God's people needed to bring their tithes and their offerings to, to the temple. But now you, you see in, in verse 24, everything that we do and all that we are is brought to the Lord as an offering of, of worship and praise. Because we are all reigning those kings of the earth, they're not those other people. It's, it's the bride. It's, it's you. It's, it's the saints as they reign in this new heaven and new earth. And who they are and what they do is now all of it given completely in worship to the Lord. But before, there were all these rules about what could enter into the camp and what had to stay outside the camp because the camp had to remain clean. And then even more rules about what could even approach the temple precincts and what had to stay outside of the temple precincts because the unholy couldn't enter the holy. But now the whole city is clean. The, the whole city is holy. Nothing evil or impure or unholy will ever defile its precincts. Verse 27. Then, then finally... As chapter 22 opens, we see symbol after symbol after symbol of the life-giving presence of the Lord. Uh, John's vision draws from Ezekiel, the, the river of the water of life flowing from the throne, and it flows along the avenues of the city and the tree of life going all the way back to Genesis 2. The tree of life is everywhere. I mean, apparently it's not just one tree, like it's, it's everywhere along the river and, and it's bearing fruit constantly for life and for the healing of the nations. And the throne is there in the middle of it all, guaranteeing our security and garnering our praise. God in the old temple was, was kind of symbolically portrayed 
as on the throne of the Ark of the Covenant, but hidden behind a veil. And only the high priest could go there and only once a year. But now, just right there in the open, in the middle of it all, is the actual throne of the Lord. His light is always shining. His name is on his people. And what you see in in that last section there, 22 verses 1 to 5, is that the city, this amazing city, which is a temple, which is the Holy of Holies, is also a garden of delight. Better than the Garden of Eden ever was or could be. And there, his people reign with him, as Adam and Eve should have but didn't. There they reign with him as, as vice regents over this new creation, this new heaven and earth, forever, we're told. And since night never falls, there is no next day. The scene just fades into endless light. If you are a Christian, you cannot meditate on this scene enough. This is your future. This is what what Christ won for you. This is what he promises to give you, which is himself. And that's certainly reason to daydream a bit. Right? To, to, to keep our eyes set on where we're going. To, to not be distracted and pulled down by the tears and cares of this life. But to remember that our future is secure. It has been won for us by Christ. And we are now called to live in light of that future. But I want you to notice one other thing about this last section, this this eighth section. It's a section that, that begins, but doesn't really end. You, you know, all the other sections, they had their one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven. That's complete, done, section over. We move on to the next one. But, but this eighth section doesn't have that. I want you to think back to the first creation as we meditate here on the new creation. What were we told there in Genesis 1? On six days, God did all his labor, and on the seventh day, he rested. Now, why did God rest? God wasn't tired. He hadn't worn himself out creating the first creation. No, he he sat down to to rest in in order to, to reign over this creation. And and you'll remember there at the very beginning of Genesis 2, for God, the seventh day doesn't end. There is no, there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. No, the seventh day for God just keeps going as he continues to reign over his creation. But what about Adam and Eve? Well, at least figuratively speaking, we don't don't know how much time elapsed between the creation of Adam and Eve and their wedding day and the day that they fell. But at least narratively, the next day, the day after the seventh day, the eighth day, as it were, Adam and Eve rebelled. And they plunged this new 
creation that God had just made, the one we're living in now, they plunged it into the darkness of sin and Satan's night. Now consider Jesus, the second Adam, when he came to establish the new creation, what did he do? Well, he completed his work on the sixth day, on Friday. And from the cross, he cried out, it is finished, it is done. And then on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, His body rested in the grave. But what happened the next day? The seventh day for Jesus Christ, with his body in that grave, the seventh day ended. And on the eighth day, Jesus got up from the dead. He walked out of the tomb and he inaugurated the new creation. He inaugurated the reality of the new heaven and the new earth. He inaugurated the life that we are seeing described in these verses. That eighth day, the first day of our week, immediately became for Christians the day that they would gather to worship and praise, a day, a day to celebrate the creation of, of new life, of new creation life in them through faith in Jesus Christ. It is today, it is the day on which we worship, on which we gather to celebrate the intimacy that we have with God through Jesus Christ, an intimacy purchased for us. On the cross. It's not just the resurrection that suggests our day of worship should be Sunday. This this is not just resurrection day, though it is. Friends, this is new creation day. Heaven tells us that today is the day. Hebrews declares that when we gather, we have actually come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to myriads of angels, a a festive gathering to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. We've come to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Christian, do you know what that means? It means that in some measure, all of this that we've just been reading about, the end of Revelation 21 and the opening of Revelation 22, all of this is already yours. You are already beautiful in Christ. I know you often don't feel like it, but you are. You have been clothed in the beautiful garments of his righteousness. You are already complete in him. You lack nothing, nothing that you need for entry into the new creation. You are secure in him. 
Oh, Satan may try to deceive you. He, he would, if he could, deceive the elect, but he cannot. Christ has claimed you. You are his. And nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hands. You are already alive with new creation life in you. I know maybe this morning you got up and you didn't feel very alive. But let me tell you, there is a spiritual reality that is truer than the physical reality that you feel. Because this body is passing away. But if you are in Christ, the life of heaven itself is already coursing through you. And it will not end. You are already indwelt by the Spirit of God. The river of the water of life is already welling up within you. Jesus talked about this in John 4. You are already reigning. We thought about that last week. You are already walking in the light. First John chapter 1. You already bear his name. What are you called? You're called Christian. What a glorious future, yes, but what a glorious present. This is yours in Jesus Christ. Yes, it is a down payment. But it is a down payment on a full inheritance that is so glorious that the glories of it are already spilling out now. So Christian... If all of this is already yours, what is keeping you from more intimacy with the Lord now? Because isn't that what this is a scene of? Us living in him and him living in us? Isn't this that scene of of intimacy with the Lord that the Lord has been planning from the beginning? What is keeping you from that intimacy now? Isn't it, for some of us, worry Worry about the cares of this life. Worry about the toils and the labors of this life. Worry that we're going to lose things in this life that are passing away anyway. Isn't it for some of us fear? Fear that that the Lord might yet reject us. Fear, Fear that... You know, if I, if, I, if I mess up one more time, I, I mean, that's it. He's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Or, or maybe it's fear that the world might reject us. That we might actually suffer in this life. That we might encounter persecution in this life. Or isn't it for some of us Shame. Shame that that the Lord looks at us and and he's disgusted. He's he's revolted. Because we look at ourselves and we're disgusted. We're we're overwhelmed with a sense of shame because of our sin. Christian, remember, there's only one throne. And from that throne, the words have already been spoken. It is done. Put aside those worries. 
Put aside that fear. Put aside that shame. Christ has died for you. The the groom has given his life for the bride. And he is not changing his mind. John has shown us the future. Which in some real way is already the present for those who are thirsty. For those who are conquering by faith. We've seen the wedding day. We've, We've seen the blissful couple at home. But now all of a sudden, as we've seen time and again in the book of Revelation, like it's a Christopher Nolan film, time rewinds. And all of a sudden we're in the present and the invitation to the wedding arrives. Look at Revelation 22, verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life as a gift. I testify to everyone who hears the words, the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. In this final section, which is really the epilogue to the whole book, in this final section, the angel who has been John's guide, we see there in verse 6, John himself in verse 8, and Jesus in verse 16, all attest to the truth of everything that has been written. And repeatedly in this section, we're reminded that the end of history is near. The Lord is coming soon. You you see that in verse 7 and in verse 12 and in verse 10. And we're told that when he comes, he will bring eternal life to those who keep the message of this book, who persevere to the end, who not only profess faith, but remain faithful. But judgment for those who do not. 
Now, on the one hand, this, this last section, this epilogue, it, it's, it's a warning. It's a warning to, to those on the outside to repent before it's too late. On the other hand, it's, it's an exhortation to believers. Don't give up. The time is short. But I think more than anything else, it is an invitation. It's the wedding invitation. To anyone who has ears to hear, both the Spirit of God and the Church of God say, come. And they say, come, because they're just repeating what Christ himself says. Verse 17, let the one who is thirsty come. And so we end where I started. Will you be present at the wedding of the Lamb? Jesus tells us here how to, how to RSVP to that wedding. And it is very much giving our wedding vows in advance. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. That, that reference to washing their robes is a reference back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, where we're told that God's people wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb who was slain. The message of Revelation is that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for us. He died for the bride to make us clean. I mean, can you imagine a bride showing up <clears throat> at her wedding day in a, in a wedding dress that was, that was filthy and, and befouled? No, of course not. No, she shows up in a wedding dress that is resplendent and beautiful and, and white. Oh, but that's not what we're like, is it? No, we in ourselves are filthy. We are befouled in our own sin and rebellion. But the message of Revelation is the message of the gospel, which is the message of the New Testament, and it is the message of the whole Bible. Christ loves you. He loves his church. And Paul tells us that he gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. This is the gospel, that the groom gave his life for the pride to make her beautiful. And friend, if you will repent of your sins, if you will trust him and, and receive him as your groom, he will wash you. He will clothe you in his righteousness. He will forgive you. He will, he will make you clean. He will include you in his bride, the church. And friend, you need not fear that on the last day, he will leave you standing alone at the altar. Oh no, having died for you, he will welcome you with open arms. If you've been following along in this Revelation series, there have been plenty of warnings of judgment to come. But this is what I want you to hear more than anything else. Jesus invites you to come to him. To 
today is the day. You can do it sitting right where you are, at home on the live stream, sitting in one of these pews or chairs. You can accept that invitation. You can acknowledge your need for him. You can accept his death in your place. And like a bride to her husband, you can vow to give your life to him wholly because he has given his life to you completely. I'd love to talk to you more about this. I'll be around after the service. Please, please come find me. If this is something that you know you need to do today. If, 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 you're, if you're watching on the live stream, contact us. We'd love to talk to you more about this. The invitation has arrived. And it is an invitation that requires nothing of you but to accept it as a gift. Christian, you've already been made clean. You've already accepted the invitation. And here Christ has given you a preview, not only of your wedding day, but of that, that next day, that, that honeymoon that never ends. Will you be present at the wedding of the Lamb? I say to you the same message that the book of Revelation has been saying to you all throughout this series. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't compromise. Persevere, no matter how tough it gets, because you know that Jesus Christ is holding on to you. And knowing that should provoke you today and every day following to to issue your own invitation. An invitation not just of lips, but of heart and of life. Like a new bride awaiting the return of her husband, may your life be this invitation. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes and amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take your bride home. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and think about whatever it is that is in the way of accepting Christ's invitation or or anything that might be tempting you away from persevering in that invitation. Confess it to the Lord and ask him to take it for you. Lord Jesus, who are we that you would invite us not simply to be spectators at your wedding like the angels, but to be participants, to be the bride itself? Who are we that we would be the object of such love? Oh Lord, we pray that you would train our eyes on that day. 
Like, like an engaged bride who has her eyes set on her wedding day. Oh, Lord, may it always be in our view. May we never lose sight of it. May we never cease preparing for it. And Lord, we pray that you would shorten the day. That that day would come quickly. That we might be found forever in your arms of love. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.